Hello there, Rob. Yo, what's up, Mike? What's up, buddy? How are you, man? Pretty good, man. We got a huge show today, man. We're talking about a very big band. I was listening to of the greatest hit all day at work today. Oh, cool. What do you think? Oh, fantastic. But I, you know what? I think I heard them in the, I think we might have even Jukebox International. Um, I don't think so. I, I don't remember. I don't think so. But we're talking about Sweet, in case you don't know. Yeah, but uh, we got like the the Bowen Blitz, and we got um Fox on the Run. I think yeah, it might no, be on the. That's right. You have Desolation Boulevard on the juke. That's right. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. That's yeah. one of their best albums. Yeah, it was fantastic, man. Um, we're not doing video today. We did the video on the conspiracy. We're trying to get the video working. Once me and Mike got there, you're gonna see our lovely faces all the time. <laughs> <laughs> very soon. Very soon. So, uh, Mike, what you got for today? So this is the Rock Show 82, Mike. Can you believe we've done 82 of these? Yeah, man. It's just time is flying, right? I mean, Yeah, have, it's crazy. We're going to have to come up with something for the 100th show. That, that'll be like mid-January. Yeah. Oh, man. Mick, we want to do Mick Jagger? No, I'm saying that'll be mid-January. Oh, man. Oh, I said... <laughs> <laughs> No, nothing on Mick Jagger. Well, we'll see. You never know. You never know. Dude, maybe we could do like a rock show. Maybe do um um do a. We already did one of the Rolling Stone album. Maybe we could do another um another uh, Ramones album for the hundred show. We could do like the best of, like the top ten best shows of the. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come up with something. We'll throw some ideas around. We got a couple of months, so we're good. So we're way ahead of time. Um, let me ask you what you got for me today. Because I know you were doing research. You were writing up the show all day. Um, yeah. And um, well, let, let me tell you, I, I'm real happy to do this show because Sweet to me are one of the most like kind of forgotten and underrated bands out there. Uh, they were at one point. I mean, they never really in America. They were always kind of like on the cusp of breaking through, but never quite. Did. They they had some uh, top ten success with some singles, um, but one thing with Sweet that would plague them through their whole career is their albums were never big big hits, like not number one. Okay, they would have number one singles in countries, but not number one albums. For some reason, it was something that they they never got away from being more of a singles band than an album band. You know? and, and that's always shocking with like bands, great band. Because you know what? When you hear them and they like the energy and they were rocking and they were considered more of a grand band, but they changed their styles. I think they were like, you know, they me, start they, they started off as a bubblegum band. Bubblegum. Yeah, band. I could I couldn't believe that. Yeah, um, and you know, transformed into like a glam band and then just into a hard rock band, and you know. It, it, all those, all those genres that they, you know, those the styles that they were in, they had hits. They were successful. These guys were talented. They were good musicians. They were they very could, good musicians. They all could sing their asses off. Okay, I mean, it, every one of them, even the drummer Mick Tucker, he, he, they all could have been lead singers, which is you don't see that. You don't usually see four guys that could sing like that in one band. No, know? doesn't happen. But it's very interesting. The uh, the origins of Sweet go all the way back to 1962. 
Let me yeah, ask you a question before you do that. Uh, were, yeah. the, were the Beatles like that? Could everybody sing on the Beatles? Yeah, that would be that would be an example. If you want to count Ringo as a good singer, if you feel generous, you could do that. But he but he sang a he tried to sing he a did. few songs, right? Yeah, he did. I mean he sang fucking Yellow Submarine, you know. Yeah. But he wasn't really he wasn't really uh a singer. You know, it was more like just give Ringo something to do. But he was talented. I mean I'm not you know, these guys in Sweet, they you know, they all had that the three of them really like like Connolly, Priest, and Tucker all had kind of the same range in their voice. But Andy Scott, the guitar player, he had a higher octave in his voice. So once he got in the band, he could hit those high notes that the other guys couldn't. And uh, you could hear that in their music. But yeah, I mean, the Beatles were, were an example of that. Sure, to answer your question. Yeah. You know, Um so, okay, uh, we'll get into it. Um, it. In 62, there was a British soul band called Wainwright's Gentlemen, all right? Now, there was a guy named Chris Wright, and he was the original singer, but he got replaced in 1964 by Ian Gillen. Now, Ian Gillen, you might recognize that name. He would later leave the band to form Deep Purple, okay? Smoke on the Water, all that. Yeah, Smoke um, on the Water. Yep, yep, big, big, heavy band, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Um, Mick Tucker, the drummer who would eventually be in Sweet, would replace the original drummer, Phil Kenton. And late 66, there would be a Scottish-born vocalist named Brian Connolly. He would become the singer in Sweet later on, and he joined that band. So you had Tucker and Connolly. They would stay in that band, uh, Wainwright's Gentlemen, until 1968, when the band broke up. And the remaining members of uh, Robin Box and Roger Hills ended up joining a band called White Plains. Now, you might remember them because they had that one hit, My Baby Loves Lovin'. Yeah, I remember okay. that. <laughs> yeah, interesting little connection right there with some, that was kind of a bubblegum song, you know. Um, in January of 68, Tucker and Connolly started a new band called The Sweet Shop. And they ended up getting Steve Priest who was the basis to a band called The Army, to join up, okay? Now, Priest had been in bands through the 60s, including a band called The Countdowns that recorded with Joe Meek. Now, Joe Meek is a guy we should do a show on. I've, I've mentioned him once or twice. Uh, he was kind of like the British Phil Spector. And he had a, a, a very successful, a very short, and a very tragic career. We could talk about it one day on a show. Um... Frank Torpy was a guy who had spent some time with Tucker and Connolly in Connolly in Wainwright's Gentlemen. He was recruited on guitar in the sweet shop. So they would play their first gig on March 9th, 1968 at the Pavilion in a place called Hemel Hempstead. It's an area about 25 miles north of London. So they became well-known on the pub circuit pretty quick. And it led to a contract with Fontana Records. Now, you remember Fontana. They yeah. come up a lot, right? Yep. So um, they quickly would be scooped up by a manager named Paul Nicholas. And this is a guy, he was a talented guy. He started out as a manager, but he actually ended up being in the musical Hair. Okay. So Nicholas introduced them to record producer Phil Wayman. And the Sweet Shop would shorten their name to The Sweet 
Yeah, that was good. Right, right. And Phil Wayman would begin working with them, recording with them. And in July of 68, their debut single was called Slow Motion. It would come out in July of 68. And it would come out on Fontana. And it would bomb. It would fail the chart. So the single itself, if you could find that single today, it's worth like hundreds of dollars on eBay. I've seen wow. It. Yeah, it's very rare. Um, Fontana Records would drop them after that. And guitarist Frank Torpy would quit the band. They would get a guy named Mick Stewart on guitar in 1969. And he was a friend of Phil Wayman's. He was brought in because he knew Phil. And he had previously worked with him. And Stewart also had worked with a guy named Johnny Kidd. Johnny Kidd and the Pirates was a band, okay? They had that hit, Shake It All Over. You might remember that. Yep, um, I remember that. Was, yeah, he was the guitarist in that lineup. Now That was Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, right? Yeah, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Now, EMI's Parlophone label would start to get interested in them, and they would release three Bubblegum Pop singles, one called Lollipop Man, one called All You'll Ever Get From Me, and then they did a cover of an Archie song called Get On The Line. They were all released between September of 69 and June of 70. So it was about a 10-month period, nine-month period. But they all bombed. Yeah. All right, all those singles. And Mick Stewart would get discouraged and he'd leave the band. So at that point, uh, Connolly and Tucker uh, was introduced by Wayman to two young songwriters. Now, these names are very important because they would go on to much bigger things with these two guys, and that's Nicky Chin and Mike, yep. Ch- and Mike Chapman. Chin and Chapman. Yep. Right. Those guys were great. Yeah. Now, they were looking for a band to record and sing some demos that they had. So Connolly Priest and Tucker, who all had great voices, right, they provided the vocal tracks over a song called Funny Funny. So it was three guys, Connolly, Priest, and Tucker. They did not play on these songs, okay? They had a, um, uh, they sang, but there was a guitarist named Pip Williams, and John Roberts was on bass, and Phil Wayman actually played the drums. He, he could play drums. So they began kind of shopping this demo of a song called Funny Funny. So at the time, they didn't have a guitar player, a regular guitar player. So they ended up settling in for a guy named Andy Scott. After a bunch of auditions, they came across him. Yeah. Um, he was Welsh-born, all right, and he made his live debut on September 26, 1970, at the Windsor Ballroom in the Red Car in Red Car, which is a section of uh, England called North Yorkshire. So the suite began experimenting with this idea of kind of like. Fusing bubblegum music with an influence of the monkeys and harmonies like the Hollies. I and, thought that was actually and, funny and, with and, the and, monkeys. And, well, you know, and, and a heaviness of the who. But yeah, I mean, they were kind of like the monkeys in a way. Yeah. The monkeys didn't write their own music, at least in the beginning, through like yeah. the TV show and all that stuff. They had a lot of writers. Uh, one group was called uh, Voice and Heart. They were big writers for them. I think they had a couple of others. Um, Mike, let me ask you a question. Would it be weird if we did the Monkees one day? No, not at all. I love the Monkees. 
I love the monkey. I, no, love, I, no, I love the show too. No, I would do a show for the monkeys. Absolutely, we should do that. Um, they were a very interesting band. I mean, they started out kind of like nobody took them seriously. Yeah, but they actually could play. And they could write music, and they did later on. They wrote some good songs. Yeah. Hey, think about David Bowie had a change. I mean, uh, Davy Jones. David Bowie was <laughs> real name was Davy Jones. He yeah. had to change it to Davy Bowie because of Davy Jones from the Monkeys. <laughs> yeah, Davy Jones from the Monkeys was huge. You couldn't have his name, right? Yeah. You know, but what the band was trying to do was was mix these, you know, the heaviness of the Who and, and bubblegum music, and that actual idea would be something that even the Ramones would do and and other like glam rock bands that came later it was just this idea of having like a heavy pop sound and that would eventually kick off punk rock you know seven years later yeah pretty much, you know so they would manage to end up on a compilation record all right the, the, the demo really wasn't going anywhere mm-hmm. but the compilation record was on a low budget label called music for pleasure in late 1970 and their three singles that recently bombed were included on that compilation so they had an album they with some other bands and stuff on a compilation that you know at least they were out there on vinyl yeah, what song was that? Was it uh what song was the one that they they put on that on that uh, album? Oh, it was, yeah, it was the three that that had bombed like the Lollipop Man, the Lollipop the Man, and the Archie song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and they covered like, you know, if there's such a thing, they covered an obscure Archie song because really the only song everybody knows from the Archies is is Sugar Sugar. Yes, yeah, sure. right? but, but they actually. I, I, it's funny because I went through a phase years ago where I was listening to a lot of that late sixties bubblegum, and and I have like a collection of Archie stuff, and it's great. It, it's just great. I mean, if you like Sugar Sugar, you know, it's all like that. You know? But they would do their first UK TV appearance in December nineteen seventy on a pop show called Lift Off, where they did perform Funny Funny. Yeah. And they would sign a management deal with the songwriting team of Chin and Chapman, with Phil Wayman brought on as executive producer. So not only was Chin and Chapman managing them, they were writing for them. Okay? And Phil Wayman would produce. But those guys were legit guys, you know? They were legit. I mean, they, they, they were just starting out. Yeah. You know? But they, you know, it was in the beginning there, it was just a great combination of, of, of talented musicians and, and singers and this songwriting team and producing. Okay, so they were locked in with that. Now, they ended up signing a contract with RCA Records, and uh, that was um, the RCA was the main label, but in, in, in the US and Canada, they were distributed under Bell Records. I remember Bell Records. A lot, a lot of yeah. things was Bell Records back in the days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a silver label. With yeah. A, it looked like, the, looked like the phone company Bell signal. Yeah. It was yeah. something. It was like a big thing that went on for People go look at old record. You would see it was yeah. like. What you know who fuck? was on? You know who was fucking on Bell like at that time? Who? The, the Partridge Family. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like if you look at the old single for I Think I Love You, yeah. it's on Bell. It's on Bell. Let me ask, was the Partridge family, were they real singer? Only the one guy no, could sing. No, no, no. It was, well, David Cassidy 
was the Partridge family. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. It was well. He had people playing with him. He's another guy we could do a show on because he he was an interesting dude. I mean, he hated being on that show after a while. <laughs> okay, he wanted to be Jimi Hendrix, and he could play. He could play guitar very well. Oh, I and, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, no. He was a very good musician, and he was never allowed to kind of develop that into anything because he was stuck in that teeny bopper thing. Yeah. You know, and if you remember the Partridge family, he was supposed to be in high school, right? Yeah. Right, he was like 25. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like stuck in that for years through the 70s, you know. But anyway, uh, Bell Records would release them in the U.S. and Canada until 1973. And then later on, Capitol Records would would release their stuff here. But Funny Funny was released as a single in March of 71, and it went top 20 in a lot of countries, uh, not in the U.S., but in a lot of European countries and around the world. Um, next was a single called Coco, and that was released in June of 71. That got to number two in the U.K., and then there was a follow-up single called Alexander Graham Bell. That was actually that a good went, song, I would say. It, 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 it was a good song, and it went to number three, in October of 71. Um, they didn't play on any of these songs, believe it or not. I believe okay. it. Yeah, they only sang. And they would sing as a quartet with their vocals, you know. So the suite would come out with a full album in November of 71. It was called Funny How Sweet Coco Can Be. Yeah, all the, okay. <laughs> that's funny. All the songs. Yeah, they mixed all of, yeah, the words into the, into the label. That's funny. But... It had the recent singles, and there was some new tracks in there, including a cover of the Love and Spoonful's Daydream, and they did a cover of the Supreme's Reflection, oh, yeah. which is ve- that's very good, too. That's an excellent, and, actually, version. If you never heard yeah. it, check it out. I, I, was, I heard it today for the first time. I think it was on that Greatest Hits, I said. Yeah, it was fantastic. That's kind of a forgotten early one, you know? Yeah, it's like, um, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, they did it very well. And the song was maybe only about two years old at that point. Yeah. So it was still fresh in people's minds. But that album was produced by Phil Wayman, and it didn't really it didn't really sell. It didn't make much of a splash. Mike, you know what but, surprised but, me about the suite? There was such an energetic band and stuff like that. I can't believe that they did, they only had a few singles that were hits. Well, they... well. They had several singles that were big No, hits. they were big hits. I know, but it was like, it's shocking because the album, some of those albums had some great songs. It wasn't like they had... Well, that's, that's <laughs> what I was saying before. Which it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, the albums themselves didn't sell like the singles. They didn't have number one albums, okay? Because the singles would go to number one sometimes or go top 10, top 20. But when it came to the album, people just didn't buy them the same way. And that was kind of strange because in the 70s, albums were big. Yeah, you know, albums were definitely great. But, um, and if you listen to sweet studio albums, the tracks that were not released as singles are strong. Yeah. You know, they're, not, they're, they're not really filler stuff. No. You know, like garbage. They're like they're songs that could be number one hits. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it, it was just strange that they were in that kind of uh, in that pattern. Let me ask you another question, real quick. Oh, did yeah. they ever have a B side that took off more than an A side? I don't believe so. 
Uh, not that I can think of. They didn't have that happen to them. Because, like, remember, like, we went through that weird phase in the 80s where people were taking out single and the B side was so much better than the A side. Yeah, well, that's happened. That's happened many times over the years with bands where they, they you know, they put out the A side and the B side is the one the record, the, the DJs play. It's amazing. You know? Yeah, I mean, it happens. But I don't think that happened with Sweet. They were pretty much, uh, and sometimes what they would do is they would put an A-side out, and that might be the uh, the Chid Chapman yeah. song, written song, and then the B-side might be a song they wrote. Oh, okay. Okay, they would do that sometimes. So it was an interesting thing. But in February of 72, they would come out with a song called Papa Joe. And that went top 20 in the UK. And it actually got to number one in Finland. And that was like their first number one in Finland. Wow. Okay. And it's funny. You think Finland, it's ice and snow and cold. And Papa Joe sounds like a song from Jamaica. It's got steel drums on it and everything. <laughs> okay. So I guess songs like that sell in Finland, right? Yeah. <laughs> but now the next two singles uh, would be big for a couple of reasons. Um, the song Little Willie and the song Wigwam Bam would both make it to number four in the UK. All right. Now, that was in 72. In 73, Little Willie would be re-released as a single in America and make it to number three. That's huge. Uh, all right. And, and that was their, their biggest American hit ever. Yeah. Okay. Got to number three. Now, I got to mention that it was huge. Not only because it was huge for them, but it was huge for me. Okay, because Little Willie is the first record I ever bought, and that was when I was four years old in 1973 on my birthday. Right? <laughs> now you could ask you could ask my parents for some reason. I loved that song when it was on the radio. I used to go ape shit when it would go on the radio. Okay, and I think finally I begged them enough, and you know got some birthday money and, and went down and bought the record. I, I, it's, it's actually, to be honest with you, buying that record at four years old is like my earliest memory. Wow, that's definitely a very early yeah. memory. Like, holy yeah, shit. You know, and, and it, it's funny. I mean, it was a top three hit. It was their biggest hit. And Sweet were never really huge, huge in America. No. And it's, fun, it's funny how so many years later I loved the band and they were the first record I ever bought, you know? Dude, but that lineup, those guys, you know what? Those any of those guys could easily be gone and do their own band. You know, they didn't have to even stay together. You know, and they played and played and played. You know. Yeah, I mean, they they never gave up, and they were yeah. very prolific, putting one two albums out a year, uh, singles, touring. I mean, they, these guys had energy. Yeah, de you know? definitely they do. When you hear them play, you like they like come out like the, it's like it's just like a very upbeat hard fucking guitar yeah. drum it's like Stomping, fuck big beat yeah absolutely now the thing about little willie and wigwam bam is that these two tracks were the first ones that they actually played instruments on okay that they, that they released so they were also at that point you know, if you listen to those songs, they're not bubblegum songs nah. anymore. These are these are like more hard rock type singles. Oh, I, I don't even call them Graham. I thought they were, I thought they were more like rock and roll, even close to even a metal kind of feel. Yeah, well, at times, yeah. Um, they they definitely were lumped in with yeah. the glam stuff, and they did that themselves. I mean, because they would wear makeup, they yeah. put the makeup on, 
And and they also, uh, you know, wore outrageous clothes. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, they were they were not afraid to shock. Okay, uh, the whole glam thing was a cultural thing in England, and it was a generational thing. You know, the younger kids were into it. The adults were appalled by it because you had men in drag. Okay, and uh, they would play it up. You know, they would camp it up. And, you know, some people thought they were gay. They were not gay. But, you know, you see some of the clips of them playing live, and they're camping it up. It's, they're just having fun. But um, in January of 73. That was almost like Hannah Rod. They looked like a bunch of girls, too, oh, and they, they were just, just playing they, it. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were getting more girls than anybody, Hanoi Rock. Yeah, they were, they were, like, banging everything, oh, yeah. man. Yeah, well, same with the New York Dolls, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, same time as 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 Sweet. So in January of '73, they would release uh, the single Blockbuster, and that would be their first number one in the yeah. UK, and it stayed there for five weeks straight. Right after that, in May, they would release a single called Hellraiser, and that got to number two. Okay. Yep. Now Bell Records in America would release their first American album called The Sweet. And that was July yep. of 73. It kind of had yep. like some of the singles and it was a different mix of stuff. And um, the band in several attempts to promote these new singles went out on a few TV shows in England. One was called Top of the Pop. You heard of that. And yeah. it was a Christmas show that they did on Top of the Pops. Now, bass, the bass player, Steve Priest, got in trouble for this. Okay. He actually performed... That show in a full SS uniform with a with a Hitler mustache and an armband swastika. <laughs> okay. So there they were on stage. They were, kind of, <laughs> they were kind of a glam band. Okay. And you got this one guy dressed up like an SS soldier, but he had makeup on. Okay. With a, with, with a Hitler mustache. It, it just was hilarious. So they... they Singing a singing a Christmas song. No, no, I don't know. They didn't do a Christmas <laughs> no. song. It was I think it, I think they oh. did Blockbuster. It just happened to be a it, oh it okay. A, it was the top of the pops Christmas special. That's all it was. But uh, wow. yeah, it was crazy. So um, uh, you know, through '73, the band was having big success. Okay, but they were kind of struggling internally with their management and their main songwriters, Chin and Chapman. Yeah. The problem was they felt that they still had this like bubblegum image, even though they were kind of doing things to stop that. They, they, they didn't play those songs anymore. They didn't play Papa Joe. They didn't play Funny Funny. Okay. But the problem was they still had a lot of fans coming out that wanted to hear that. And but they, you know what? They didn't even need to play that because it was already done, man. Well, it, it, it was already done. But, you know, they had this like, fan base from before and it was like you know little girls and shit okay and then when they got heavier with little willie and wigwam bam and hellraiser and stuff then they got a whole new audience so there was kind of yeah. like this crossover period where they had both and they they gave up on the the bubblegum stuff they said nope we're not doing that no more and at times okay for instance there was a, a show in 73 at the Palace Theater in uh, Kilmarnock, okay, that they ended up having bottles thrown at them, 
Oh man! Okay, they got a lead. they had a lead because they were getting hit with bottles, and uh, it was because the people didn't know the songs that they were doing. They wanted to hear funny, funny. Yeah, and Papa Joe, yeah. Papa Papa Joe, yeah. Yeah, and, and they were out. They were you know dressed up in drag, you know, in makeup, and these you know there's sections of England in those days. You would have got your ass handed to you if you did that. Okay, you know to to show up like that. On stage. So, so, Mike, they were getting probably right by this time. It's like almost like that gram rock explosion, right? They probably were yeah. compared to uh, Gary Glitter, yeah, uh, T T Rex, um, Bowie, Queens, everybody, right? So this was like a huge movement, right? So yeah. they were like, were, the glam, were they the the glam rock scene was was absolutely huge. You know, it was kicked off by T Rex, Mark Bowen and T Rex, and yeah. uh, you know Bowie would take it to a totally different level. But then you had other bands like, um, you know, Gary Glitter. You had, yeah. ba- you had bands like Slade. You Slade. Had, you know, you had Sweet. Okay, we're doing a show on Slade next week. Okay. Yeah, Wizard too. Uh, yeah, uh, Wizard was uh, an interesting band. That was uh, uh, Roy Wood, who was in a band called The Move with a yep. guy named Jeff Lynn. And when The Move broke up, Jeff Lynn and, and Roy started ELO, Electric Light wow. Orchestra. And oh, then, yeah. Yeah, and then Roy would only be with them briefly, very briefly, and then start Wizard. Yeah. And they were kind of like a, a weird glam band. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. just that there is fascinating. Definitely, definitely. And um, that incident I talked about where they had the bottles thrown at them, okay, that's kind of what the song Ballroom Blitz is about. It was written about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh by the end of seventy three they also went for another name change and they stopped calling themselves the sweet and dropped the the and just became sweet. I think that sounds so much better. Yeah, yeah. It was just an evolution of the name, you know. So by seventy four the band was looking to record a new album, but they were looking to start writing their own stuff. So it kind of took them on a crash course with Chin and Chapman. Of course. And, and, you know, they wrote their biggest hits for them. So they were also growing tired of the glam image, too. All right. They were tired of doing this, like, makeup thing. So Phil Wayman was brought in again to produce, and the album was called Sweet Fanny Adams. And it was released in April of 74. Now, tracks like the title track, Sweet F.A., and a track called "Set Me Free" were were real hard rocking songs, and they were yeah, actually, they were they were great songs. Yeah, they, and they were written by the band. They were written by the band, not Chitty yeah. Chapman. Okay, and they were proven to the world and to themselves that they could write their own stuff. I think, you know, um, people knew that they didn't write their own music, and in the early seventies, I don't think too many people cared about that. But when it came to maybe rock critics and things like that, it was definitely like a detriment. You know, it, it wasn't it made them kind of like look not too serious, you know. So but they and they but they were a serious band and they knew they could write their own stuff. And Chin and Chapman knew they could. OK, it wasn't like that they were just, you know, feeling bad for them and writing their songs. They knew yeah. they knew they could do it. So they backed off and they let them write the songs. Okay. Now they also kind of toned down the 
the glam rock image at that point in late 74. And they kind of just looked like a hard rocking band. You know, they still had the same hairdos. They didn't wear the makeup, but they wore like leather and more like bands that were around with like a hard rock image more than glam, you know? So, but they were definitely looking, you know what? They were definitely looking, but they were definitely, they weren't glam. They were more like hard rock, man. They were playing like hard rock. To me, it wasn't glam no more where they started doing that. They were playing pretty much metal rock. I, that, that's what it sounds to me, even yeah, though. It was just rock and roll. It was just, you know, yeah. hard, you know, hard rock, hard rock and roll. You could have put them in a, you know, you could have had a concert with them with like Kiss or something like that. You know what I, I mean? Mike, you read my mind. I was going to say, I said you could have put them as the opening band for Kiss and it would be a perfect yeah. segue to um, yeah. whatever was going on. Yeah. I, I Too bad they never played together. That would have been interesting. Yeah. You know, now one kind of tragic thing that happened during the Sweet Fanny Adams album is that Brian Connolly was injured in a fist fight. All right. Now, one thing you got to know about Connolly and pretty much the whole band, but Connolly especially, he was a hard drinker, all right, and that would eventually take his life. Uh, but he got into a fist fight. I think it was in a bar or something outside a bar. And uh, his, he got, his, his throat was injured. I think he got punched in the throat. Yeah, he got definitely punched in the throat or hit, but yeah. he definitely got fucked up. Yeah, and he couldn't do a lot of his vocals on his, on that album. And Steve Priest and Andy Scott kind of filled in on it and did it for him. Uh, like, for instance, the song No You Don't. Yep. Okay. The song Into the Night and the song Restless. Yeah. But Brian's not singing on that. <coughs> okay. Now, the band, you know, were tight, and they, they never told the press what happened. It never got out that he was hurt. And uh, some shows that they had scheduled that they had to cancel – they just said he had like a sore throat, like a throat infection. Okay. Yeah, so they were hiding this for a while, right? Well, you could you could do that in those days, you know, you could. And um, but unfortunately, the injury really turned out to be permanent because he never had the range that he used to have. Okay, because uh, remember, these guys could really sing, and and they just you know after that, he would need help with his vocals on all the albums. So. Most countries at that time, uh, they didn't release any singles from that album, Sweet Fanny Adams, except in Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. And they released their version of the Peppermint Twist, okay, that was on that album. And it was actually done without the band's knowledge. RCA put that out and didn't tell them. And it got to number one in Australia. Wow. uh, The Peppermint Twist. So they would be touring all over the place. Um... But Sweet Fanny Adams would be Sweet's only studio album to make the UK top 40. All okay. right. And, and that goes back to what I was saying a couple of times already is that's their, their highest charting album. And it, it just cracked the top 40. OK, so they didn't sell a lot of albums. But in June of 74, The Who would invite them to open for them at the, uh, the Charlton soccer team's football, you know, stadium. And that's huge. Yeah, it was a huge thing, but they had to turn the gig down because of Brian's throat problem. Yeah. So they couldn't do it. And that would have been big for them because they were gigantic, huge uh, Who fans, you know? That, that might have changed their whole career if they would have just done that. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely it definitely could have, but unfortunately, they, he couldn't do it. 
he was still recovering. So later in the summer of 74, they parted ways with Phil Wayman. Everything had kind of run their course. Yeah. They, were starting, they were starting to be interested in producing themselves. Um, it was then that they recorded Desolation Boulevard with Mike Chapman producing. Okay? So they got half of that Chin Chapman team back, Mike Chapman, and he, yeah. he produced that out. Now, remember, Mike, Mike Chapman and, 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 uh, and Chin was still uh, managing them. Yeah. Okay, so they were still involved. But they recorded Desolation Boulevard, which to me is like, I think it's their best album. Yeah, Chapman uh, definitely did a good role in producing this album because this album was definitely a great album. Yeah, he would produce uh, a lot of great people. Um, he was involved with Blondie. I think he produced Eat to the Beat. Oh, album. he did? Yeah, and uh, Eat to the Beat or was it was it even Parallel Lines? It was one of the other, one of those two. And uh, he also uh, would work with Pat Benatar. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like Pat Benatar does a version of No, You Don't. On, I think it's on her first album. And it's very good. You know, that the first one or two Pat Benatar albums are really good. Um, they would record this album in six days, okay? Because he was from Australia, right? He was like an Australian guy, right? Uh, Chapman? Mike Chapman? I thought he was British. No, nah, I think Chapman was... Um... I think Chapman was uh, born in Australia. Then he moved. He emerged like in Great Britain. It's possible. That's a good question. <laughs> you know what? Know. Yeah, yeah. Because I think yeah. Because he he's he's he was born born in on uh, born definitely in um Australia. Australia. Yeah. Okay, that's possible. I just looked it up real quick. Oh, okay. Chapman, right. and they talk about the Chapman and Chin. And yeah, you were right about Blondie. Um, Chapman offers Chapman. Often some some girls to Blondie, the song eventually gave to Racy instead. Uh, Derry Hasman refers to Chasman as a dictator. She called him a dictator. Oh, well. What album did he do? Was it Parallel Lines or, or E to the Beat? That's what I'm looking at right now. I don't see that. But he definitely, the guy did a bunch of fucking work with a bunch of people. Holy shit, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that Chin Chapman writing team, they worked with a lot of people and they produced a lot. Definitely. Definitely. But um, getting back to Desolation Boulevard, you know, it was recorded in six days and it kind of has a very raw, live sound to it. So yeah, they would release a single called um, The Sixteens. And that would come out in July of 74 when they were still kind of working on the album. They put out that single. And then there was a song called Turn It Down. And that was released in November. That song went top 10. Okay. But the outstanding single on Desolation Boulevard for me is Fox on the Run. Okay. Now that's a song. I mean, I remember. Fox on the Run was a great fucking song. Yeah. Yeah. As a, I remember as a kid hearing that song in the mid seventies. And it was like, you couldn't get away from it. It ended up being a number five hit in the United States. Um, but one thing you got to know about that song, the, the album version is very different than the, the single version. Yeah. Did you notice the difference? Did you play them both? Or? Yeah. There's a very different, it's very different. I like guess it's, it's I don't know why, why did they do that? What happened with that? Well, I think that when they put it out on the record, um, RCA said, well, you know, it's a good song, but it's not really 
good for a single. It needs a little bit of something to it. And they added kind of like a poppier sound to it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it had like a little different beginning to it. And you hear some kind of spacey sounds and stuff in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's not really on the studio, ver- you know, the, the album version of it. Um, both versions are good. Yeah. But the one, the one that was the single version, that was the big hit. Yeah, Mike, you were right. Parallel Lines was the Parallel one that he lines. did. Yep. Yeah, right. That's true. I think, uh, yeah, I think that was the only album he did for Blondie. And think how huge that was. Yeah, but De- De- Debbie Harry De- Debbie De- De- didn't want to work with him again. He said he was, he was rough. <laughs> he probably beat her. <laughs> yeah, she probably liked it. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, okay, so... Uh, the the version also the U.S. version of Desolation Boulevard, all right. Now it had a cover of their big billboard with all their faces on it that was yeah. put on the Sunset Strip. The the version the U.S. version is different than the U.K. version, even the album. Okay, Ballroom Blitz and the single version of Fox on the Run is included on the U.S. version, and they also put some songs from Sweet Fanny Adams on there. Okay. Side one uh, is all Chapman and Chin written songs. And side two of the record is all Sweet written songs. That's how they did it. So, Mike, technically when they released something in the U.S., it was almost like some kind of greatest hit album. They, they were weird like that because they, they were kind of like the record company would, would, would release it differently in, in both countries. Um, not too many plays. Not you don't see that really anymore too much. No. Um, but for some reason, you know, this was this was back in the day when bands would put out singles in between albums that weren't yeah. on the albums, and sometimes those singles would take off. Like it was a British band, it might take off in America, and then you know when you come out with the album, it wasn't going to be on the album because then nobody would buy it, right? But then, you know, they wouldn't buy it because they already had the single. Yeah. But sometimes you had to put it on there just to even get anybody to buy it, you know? So it would, it, in different countries, things were released differently sometimes depending on what was selling. Yeah. You know? So uh, other songs from Sweet Fanny Adams would go on there and, and you know, it would be a little bit different. Uh, I've actually heard both. Um, there's also a great version. It's an interesting song. Uh, the song called The Man with the Golden Arm. Okay? Yeah. Now, there was a Frank Sinatra movie called... Um, the fuck was it called? The Man with the Golden Arm. Right. <laughs> That's also a Kung Fu yeah. movie. The Kid with the Golden Arm. <laughs> the Kid with the Golden Arm. The Man with the Golden Arm is, is a Sinatra flick that he's, he's a musician. He's a jazz drummer. And he uh, is a junkie. Okay? And it's really the first movie that deals with this. It came out like around 59, 1960, something like that. Wow. And there's a, there's a theme to it that is, there's a theme song that's throughout the whole movie. You hear it. And the suite used to open up with that. Wow. Okay. And there's actually an eight and a half minute long drum solo in there. Now that was not put on the American version, but it's actually on the British. 
the British version of the of the song. They got uh, they got the, it. The British version of Desolation Boulevard. The album. Wow. Yeah, and it's very cool. Um, How many times have you ever heard like an eight minute drum solo? <laughs> Led Zeppelin. That's about it, man. That's it, man. Not yeah. too many people you do know, that. Mo- Mo- Moby Dick, you know, by Led Zeppelin. Um, now, riding high into '75, they they would release a single called Action in July. And that got to number 15 in the UK. Uh, most of the second half of 75, they spent in Munich, Germany, at a place called Musicland Studios. Uh, they were working on a totally band-written album and totally produced by them album. And that would be called Give Us a Wink. Okay. Now, Give Us a Wink would be actually completed in 75, but the record company held off uh, releasing it until later in 76 because Desolation Boulevard was doing so well in the United States it actually got to number 25 and uh, it went to number 5 in Canada so that was you know one of their best selling albums ever Okay, um, Give a Wink was held back so what RCA did in the meantime is they would release a double album only in Europe and it was called Strung Up and it came out in November of 75. This is a very rare album, if you could find it, too. I've, I've never actually heard it, to be honest with you. Uh, it's, it's a live album. And it's a double album, right? It's a, it's a double album. It's, it's live in 73 in London is one of the records. Okay. And, and the other one is just a bunch of previously released singles all put together. Uh, there was one track that was new. And it was written by Chin and Chapman. It was called I Want to Be Committed. Wow. I Want to Be Committed. I Want to Be Committed. Right. Now, Andy Scott would be a a little busy himself. And he would release a a solo single called Lady Starlight. All right. It didn't really do much. It just was something he wanted to do. So in January of 76, a new single came out called The Lies in Your Eyes. And that was released, and it went top 10 in Europe. But it only got to number 35 in the UK. So Give Us a Wink was finally released in March of that year. And the, began, and the band began an American tour right away. Uh, what they were trying to do was really build their popularity based on the success of Desolation Boulevard. Um, when they came, they kind of like disregarded Give Us a Wink in the set lists. And they did pretty much just everything from Desolation Boulevard and before that. Uh, there was a new single called Action also, right? That was released in America. Yeah. And that was doing okay, so they would include that as well. But this headlining tour that they were on started off with problems right away. Um, there was a guy named Paul Kassab, and he was the ex-guitarist in a band called Free. You remember the song All Right Now? Yep. Okay. Now, he had a band after Free broke up, and it was called Backstreet Crawler. And they were supposed to be the supporting band for Sweet on that tour. But Kossoff died of a drug overdose. And they had to scramble for, like, an opening band all the time. And there was actually one appearance at the Santa Monica Civic Center on March 24th of that year that Sweet played the Free song All Right Now with Richie Blackmore. Yeah. So kind of like a tribute to Paul Kossoff. Yeah, to the, the, the Defa Free guitarist. Yep. Right, right. Now, the tour itself would be a financial disaster. 
Um, they had to actually cancel a bunch of dates at the end. Uh, the band ended up leaving the tour early, canceling the dates, and doing shows in Scandinavia and Germany to kind of like recoup some of their finances. They ended up in Japan, and it was here that Connolly's voice really, you know, the throat injury he had had really gotten bad because they were on con- they were constantly touring, constantly recording. I think he never really healed right, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and uh, they needed to have a break. So between October of 76 and January of 77, Sweet would write and produce a new album called Off the Record. And it would come out in April of 77. There would be a single called Lost Angels. And that was really only a hit in Germany. It really didn't do that well. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't take off. And then there was uh, another single released later called The Fever of Love. And that uh, only charted in Germany as well. Um, they kind of were changing their style a little bit. All right. They were going into almost a, a Euro pop direction they were kind of interested in you know we brought up elo before uh they were kind of getting into like incorporating like strings and stuff into their music and it, it it would prove to be you know pretty successful commercially so right away um that that song uh fever of love it, it didn't do well in europe but it actually was top 10 in south africa all right so they ended up doing a tour. Um, I don't think they went there, but they toured the United States in 77. They were supposed to, excuse me, they were supposed to tour the States in 77 with Aerosmith. But the band ended up canceling it, and they never actually toured in support of that album at all for some reason. I think I, a lot of it had to do with Connolly. Yeah, I think his voice was pretty much done by then. His voice, you know, was having problems, and also... He was he was drinking. There was a lot of drinking, some drug taking going on. He liked his cocaine. He liked his he liked his yeah. alcohol. He but think about it. Alcohol. His voice is damaged, and he's singing and he's live. You know how 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 long can you go for? You know what I mean? Yeah. Not many more years. You know. Not many more, man. Yeah. Now in '77, the Suite would leave RCA Records, and they would sign a new record deal with Polydor. Suite's manager at the time was David Walker. Okay, and, you know, they had gotten rid of Chin and Chapman at that point. And a guy named David Walker was part of a management company called Handle Artists. And they got he actually got them that deal with Polydor. And they say it was for something like seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, it was a lot of fucking money. A lot of money in those days. Now, Capitol Records, since uh, about 74, had been issuing the sweet albums in the U.S., Canada and Japan, they took over from Bell, and they would continue to do so until 1980. Okay, so they still had the capital connection. But the first album on Polydor was called Level Headed, and it was released in January of '78. And like I said, their sound was starting to change. They were incorporating kind of like what ELO was doing, like a lot of strings and classical music into their sound. Um, it was melodic. They had a lot of ballads. They kind of softened things a little bit. Um, There would be a duet with a a female vocalist named uh, Stevie, okay? And it was Stevie and Brian Connolly would would do a song called Love Letters. 
It was a French title, uh, Lettres d'Amour, Love Letters. Okay. So the single off that album was a song called Love is Like Oxygen. Yep. That song, I, I, I remember when that song came out. I mean, it was, it was a top 10 hit in the United States. And it was their last top 10 hit. Okay. Um, it was a top 10 in the U.S., the U.K., and Germany. All right. And uh, the way that song was arranged, Andy Scott, who wrote the song, actually got what was called the Ivor Novello Award. Yeah. So it was it was an interesting thing that they were able to get that award. Um, another single was called California Nights off that album. Yep. And that would feature Steve Priest on lead vocals. And that would be released in May of 78. And it would peak at number 23 in Germany. So that award is almost like their their form of the Grammys, almost. No, 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 no. It's it's more for. Uh, I think that award is more for classical music. Wow! How the okay. hell do you? How was that? That's crazy. Well, if you you know if you listen to "Love Is Like Oxygen" and a couple of the other songs on that, they were doing something. I'm not saying they were like doing classical music. But they were incorporating like orchestra orchestrated music into the rock music that they were doing. It was it was an interesting experiment. Um, had it been a, like a, a lesser band, it would have sucked. Okay, but they they kind of like with their harmonizing with their voices. Even though Connolly's voice was starting to go, the other yeah. three guys could still sing. So it, you know you didn't really notice it that much. It just Connolly between his drinking and his drug taking and stuff and, and, and his voice not being so strong, the live shows were a little hard, harder to do for him, you know, but in the studio at that point, they could still, they could still kind of fake it, you know? Yeah. So, and, the, and now he's uh, the beginning of the end for this guy's coming soon. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, Brian Connolly, like I said, he had a bad drinking problem for years, but things really came to a head on the U.S. tour they, they did with Bob Seger in 78. Uh, it was between March and May that they were in the States. There was one particular gig in Birmingham, Alabama, where they had a bunch of Capitol Records executives in the crowd. Okay. And Connolly was on stage and he was drunk and totally incoherent. And he ended up you know, being so lumped up that he actually collapsed <laughs> on stage. <laughs> so right in front of the record executives, that was not good. They they went back to Britain after that for a little while, but they came back in July to do another leg of the American tour, and they ended up having some successful shows opening for Foghat and Alice Cooper. But Brian Connolly's, uh, Connolly's alcoholism was really becoming a major issue in the band. So in late October, at the Townhouse Studios in Shepherd's Bush in, in, in London, okay, the band recorded an album called Cut Above the Rest. Now, during the beginning of the recording of that, Brian's vocals were, were, were useless, and his health was a serious concern. He was, like, just drunk all the time. And drummer Mick Tucker, kind of the, the band gave him the job of just producing Brian, okay? In other words, you know, they would, as a team, they would produce the album. But, but uh, Mick, because he knew Brian the longest, they were, they were back from, you know, Wayne's right gentlemen back in the early 60s, okay? 
Um, he thought the band thought that he could kind of get Brian to to do a good job recording, but it didn't work out. Okay, so Connolly only sings lead on a few tracks on that album, and it would all come to a head on November second, nineteen seventy eight. Brian would just leave the band, and uh, they didn't tell anybody. They they kept it quiet all the way to February of seventy nine for three months. And the album would eventually come out in April. What they told the press is that, you know, Brian uh, left the band and he was actually going to pursue a career in country rock, which never really happened. Okay. Um, I think I think they just did that to save face. Yeah. And I don't think they wanted it out, <laughs> you know, how fucked up he was. You know, they didn't want to hurt him. You know, it just wasn't going to work in the band. And they became a trio after that. Yeah, what they did at first, they would audition a couple of singers, but it didn't work out. So they ended up uh, being a three-piece. Steve Priest would do most of the lead vocals, right? And Andy, Steve Priest got a great. It's like he, he you does know, a great voice. He does great a great voice. Yeah, and Andy Scott and and McTucker would do some leads on some songs as well. Now they would bring in a guest keyboard player now named Gary Moberly, and they also brought in a second guitar player for the live shows a guy named uh, Ray McReiner. And uh, he did a, a, an American tour with them in 79 where they opened for Journey and Cheap Trick. Wow. Yeah. So the next sweet album would come out, and it was called Water's Edge. And it came out in August of 1980. It was the first album without Brian. Without Brian. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, two tracks, one called Too Much Talking, and then there was a single called Give the Lady Some Respect. Both were written by newcomer McReiner. Unfortunately, some tragedy would hit also around that time because Mick Tucker's wife would drown in the bathtub of her house, of their house, uh, the day after Christmas of 1979. So all of 1980, the band went on hiatus. All right, they didn't tour at all that year. Mick Tucker had to get his life together. But they would record one last album called Identity Crisis. They would work on that. Uh, they would perform their last live show at Glasgow University on March 20th, 1981. Uh, Identity Crisis was actually recorded at that point, but Polydor didn't want to release it. And it didn't come out actually until almost a year after they broke up in 1982. And uh, that's called Identity Crisis, and that was their last album. Um, Andy Scott, at that point, not too long after, would put together his version of Sweet. Okay, yep. it, was, it was called Andy Scott's Sweet. And Mick Tucker was in the lineup. There was a revolving door of, of different musicians. Their first vocalist, the first lead vocalist, was a guy named... Paul Mario Day. Now, his name may come up later on when we do a show on Iron Maiden because Paul Mario Day was, was Iron Maiden's first singer. Yep. Okay. And they would have several lineup changes through that. Now, Mick Tucker, uh, through the 80s, would be in that band. But in 1991, he would leave Andy Scott's suite because he got diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. Okay, now in 1984, Brian Connolly had his own version of Sweet, 
Okay, and it was called Brian Connolly's Sweet. And these two versions of Sweet, the Andy Scott and the Brian Connolly version, would lead to some legal battles between them. Okay, and they had a, you know, a huge falling out over this. Um, Connolly would eventually make up with Steve Priest and Mick Tucker in 1994. Uh, he did record some solo material over the years. But his final concert was December 5th, 1996 at the Bristol Hippodrome. Um, Steve Priest, a little bit later on, starting in 2008, would come back and uh, he would have his own version of Sweet. And that would last until this year when he passed away. I actually saw this version of Sweet uh, back in 2013. They, they played at the Bergen Performing Arts Center in New Jersey, and uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, David Johansson was there from the New York Dolls. Wow. They, there, they played. Um, Brian Connolly would pass away in February of 1997 uh, from basically liver failure and heart disease. Uh, you know, if you see, like, some later pictures of Connolly, he looked pretty bad. Uh, Mick Tucker would die in June of 2002 from his long battle of leukemia. He fought leukemia for over 10 years. Um, and Steve Priest would pass away on June 4th of this year, just a little over a month ago. Yeah. So the only guy left is, is Andy Scott. He's the only one left. Yeah. You know, sad. But uh, they had a good run, and they were, you know, really – really instrumental in in so many things um you know being influential in the punk scene i would say is their is their biggest contribution uh i i can remember like johnny ramone uh, reading something that he said where you know when he was trying to put the ramones together it was always a concern that they all really weren't they didn't know how to play they weren't good musicians and they were learning as they were going along. But they looked at bands like Sweet, who, you know, you could see Sweet or you could see Slade. And, you know, they weren't Jimi Hendrix, but it was stuff that they, they felt that they could do. And Sweet definitely influenced punk in England as yeah. well. You know, absolutely. Because right now the only version, uh, Steve Pri- Pri- uh, Priestley, right? He's, he, is, does he still perform? No, no. Steve Priest passed away last month. That's mom, yeah. The only guy, the only guy that's left is Andy Scott. Uh, I think. Yeah, that's what I mean. Andy Scott didn't do because he, he never he had he tried to perform or he just done with the whole thing. No, he's he's around. Uh, he 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 he's been doing little things here and there. Um, he had his version of Sweet in the eighties. Yeah, that's but, what I mean. Um, yeah, I mean the guy's about. Jeez, he must be about seventy-five now. Okay. So he's not around too much. Uh, you never know. I mean, he may come back. Yeah, because Steve Priest played to the lives, end almost. See, you but know? he lives. His version of Sweet was really in Europe. Okay. Okay. What? Uh, Steve Priest lived in America. Yeah. So his version played all over the place in America. That's why I was able to see it. Okay. okay. But Andy Scott's version never came here, as far as I know. Wow. Yeah. So crazy, man. Crazy fucking history, man. A band yeah. 
a band that went to a lot of, they didn't go to too many members. The only thing that a lot of the guys left and got tired and pretty much to continue on, you know? Hey, you know, they had a great run there in the 70s. Um, and, and they were able to change their style two or three times. And yeah, still, they did. And still, and still be good and still sell. Yeah, that's that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean they, they had they had a fan base that was loyal and and they were just talented. It just was a sign that they were so talented, you know. And for and them to stick it out for all those years and stay to you know and stay together, which all of them could have just easily be like, "Fuck this, we're going our separate way." And yes, they could each they could each start a, they could all started a band. They could have all been solo. Yeah, you know? and 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 they they stuck together as a band. As long as they could, and even as a three-piece after Connolly left, you know. Yeah. So that's all I got for you today, Mister Rossi. Wow, you? man, that was a uh, man. We got like a good hour and five minute of the sweep, pretty intense show. A lot of information. I learned a lot about about them and uh, a lot of the stuff that they did. Um, I think um, I think later on we might have to revisit like uh, Chapman and Chin. Maybe they'll get their own show, you know. Yeah, yeah, or definitely like a making of Desolation Boulevard or something. Yeah, because um, these guys were interesting guys too. If you start reading them, like some people, they got people love them or hate them. There's no in between. It's amazing if you start reading a little bit of their history. Yeah, yeah. Now, 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 um, Steve, Steve, Steve Priest has a, a, a biography that he wrote that I've actually never read, so it's on my bucket list. So I'm definitely going to read about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll revisit Sweet maybe in a few months. Oh, so, so he did write a book, right? Yeah, it's called "Are You Ready, Steve?" Are you ready, Steve? I wonder. It's probably about the sweets, right? Probably. It's all. It's all about the sweet, you know, because the, even the title, "Are You Ready, Steve?" Yeah, are you ready, Steve? From, that's the uh, the beginning of Ballroom Blitz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very oh cool. man! So Mike, this is the eighty second edition of the Rock Show, man. Great job on the history of the suite and a lot of details, a lot of inside information that only our Rock of Mike can fucking get you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank um, you. Yeah, man. So um, we also again, once again, uh, we're changing some stuff. Uh, we're gonna go back to video soon. Yep. Uh, probably later shows on. Right now we're working on some video, but um. I'm glad that everybody enjoys the show. We get some great feedback. We get some people that they're like, holy shit, man. Um, I love your guys' show. We get a lot of good feedback. Um, we got shirts now. If you want a person a shirt, go to uh, ProWrestlingTea.com. Um, get lumped up and get the Rock, sh- the rock Show uh, t-shirt. And, uh, is, is the Rock Show shirt up there already? Yeah, it's up there. If you go to uh, Pro Wrestling T, it's up there. It's the one that say the Rock Show, and it say so. Um, we probably with the next time we'll do like a show on conspiracy. We'll put the shirts on. Okay, excellent, excellent. Cause so they're up up there. And uh, another thing, Mike, how can people email you, read, uh, read you? And also, we got to do another um, group thing. We're uh, getting together with people and talk to them like we did that one night. Yeah, I think we'll do that in a week or two before the okay. month, before the month is over. All right. Um, uh, one thing I want to mention is the next show we're doing is on Slade. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Another, another great band from that same era, pretty much. Uh, we may have a guest for that show. Hopefully, hopefully we get a friend of mine that is very acquainted with that band. Um, okay. And also, uh, if you want to find me, I'm on Instagram, Rocker Mike Two One Two. I'm on Twitter, Rocker Mike Three. 
I'm on Facebook under my real name, which is Michael Baker, B-A-K-E-R. And then also we got the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook. Uh, Lots of stuff on there every day. The podcast, of course. Uh, Song of the day, lumped up song of the night. Uh, All kinds of uh, everything. Album covers, interviews. I try to post at least 10 or 12 things every day. Um, you know, feel free to join and and and, and post your own shit. That's yeah, cool. but you know, like I've been, I, I I find a lot of or oh, I found or they send me interesting article a lot of time, and I put a lot of weird shit up there. Anytime I find, whenever I find something that looks right. familiar and weird, um, you know, we got 156 members. We just added two more members, and um, cool. you know what? We uh we keep growing. The the the, the rock show's growing. Um, and um. You know, we, we do a lot of research and stuff. So, guys, get the T-shirt. Help us out. Go And also uh, follow us at Getting Lumped Up. To, uh, go to the website. Check us out. You can see pictures of our mugs. And um, they also got a link to the shows everywhere, from YouTube to um, to Instagram. The, wherever the show's on, you can pretty much find it there. And we're pretty much on almost every uh, podcast platform. So, right now, we're probably in 53 different platforms. Excellent, excellent. So, and, uh, where can we find you, Rob? So um, you can you. pretty much find me on the Rock, uh, the Rock Show uh, webpage. Also, that uh, Mike did for um, Facebook. That's the Rock Show podcast for your Rock and Mike and Rob. You can reach me at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube at anything getting lumped up. You look getting lumped up. You're gonna see my big nugget there. And you're going to see my face, and then uh, right there, it will take you to any link that you guys want to see. But I'd like to uh, thank the people. I'd like to thank uh, Rocker Mike, and this is a journey so far, and we enjoy doing the show and bringing this to you guys every week. And uh, we're like, dude, we're we're so far ahead. We got so many shows that you guys are going to be like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, they're all in the We could die, and there'd still be shows coming out. <laughs> It'll be like Tupac. <laughs> be a lot of albums coming out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All well, right, man. Fun as usual, Rob. Yeah, great show, man. Great show, great job. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks. And we'll have a special show. And Mike might have a special guest. And remember, don't get drunk, get, get lumped, lumped up. up. See you later. Take care, people. All right, bye.